Now, as you know, this year in our institute, and if you're, if you're new uh, to our institute, you just started coming here in the last month or so, couple of months, um, this is our third year. We have available for you uh, all the other material that you may want to get to get caught up. So uh, uh, just see, uh, uh, where's Pam at? Raise your hand. Just see Pam here and she can get you the tapes, uh, whatever you need uh, to get it all up to speed. But, um, and anything I can do to help you, you know, uh, you feel free to get with me and come over and we'll sit down and I'll help you uh, put all the material together. But this year, uh, with where we have come through, uh, we're starting the doctrinal series. And we're looking at the, uh, the great doctrines of the Bible that really make the Bible work for you and come alive. And um, I told you when we started this that we were going to come through the natural format by which God has laid out his Bible. Uh, the, I, honestly, the key to learning the scriptures is just to find uh, God's simple way that he broke the Bible down for you to learn it. Man, as he does with everything that is God's, makes it so complicated. When the truth of the matter is, it's very simple. And uh, you're going to find that uh, every book of the Bible has a natural outline to it, a natural breakdown that God, by design, built into each one of those books. Uh, now, you can learn the book man's way, or you can learn the book God's way. And it, it's just that simple. God's way is uh, a lot easier, and it, it covers all the bases that you don't lose anything in the, in the aspect of it. Uh, man's way, you may learn some things, and you may get some things, but at the end of the day, it won't, it won't dovetail itself into everything else in the Bible. And the Bible itself, understanding it, is there's a, there's a format to that. And that is what we commonly call the seven series. God does everything by seven, so it's no wonder that when he broke the Bible down, he did it in a series of sevens. And I told you that when you start going through these seven series, um, not only do you learn the great doctrines of the Bible, but you're going to begin to see that they begin to crisscross each other. Uh, they begin to go up against each other. And you're going to find that uh, as we come through these that you see the ones we've already studied coming back into play because they all interlock with each other. And you remember when I started this, I drew a, a net up here, you know, like, like, and I showed you that that's what the, the seven series does. It provides for you a doctrinal net that you won't fall through into heresy. And every heresy today that is either is in the church or outside of the church, but is still heresy, comes from somebody not understanding how the Bible goes together and getting something out of the wrong context. And this is what the seven series does for you, one of the things it does for you. So we started with the seven mysteries. And I showed you that, uh, you know, Paul uh, talked about the fact that in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 2, that we are supposed to be stewards of the mysteries of God. And of course, you remember me telling you that you probably couldn't find two or three pastors in this city who even know what they are, let alone are, are stewards and teaching them. 
And the mysteries is the reason why I started those first, because those are the fundamental, that's where you start. And uh, there's 12 mysteries given to the nation of Israel in the Gospels in Matthew, and then there's seven mysteries given to the church throughout the rest of the New Testament that Paul writes. So you want to always start there. And, uh, you know, and he tells us that we are to be required as stewards to be faithful in it. And the job of the church is to be faithful in giving to the people what God has, you know, given to the church. And so we started with the seven mysteries. And then we went into, last time, <clears throat> the seven baptisms. And we defined baptism for you now as not water. And we showed you that the, there's one faith, one Lord, and, and one baptism. <clears throat> and the true baptism has nothing to do with you being dunked in water. Uh, it has to do with the baptismal, uh, uh, baptism of the Holy Spirit of God when you got saved, when you got immersed with the Holy Spirit. We showed you how that water, and when you get baptized, is just a picture of that. So <clears throat> we went through the seven baptisms, and I showed you how that they work their way all the way through the Bible, each one illustrating uh, something about the one true baptism, and I, we gave you all the verses along with that. <clears throat> now today, I want to talk about <clears throat> the seven resurrections. And uh, <clears throat> again, <clears throat> these are these are key to understanding as we move through the doctrinal aspect of the Bible and the foundation by which the Bible is built on. And you're going to find as you come through the scriptures that there are seven distinct resurrections. And uh, oh, you know what? I'm sorry. I want to teach the seven judgments today. <laughs> <coughs> But that's okay, because you find coming through the Bible, seven judgments. And uh, I want to do this one before I do the, the next one. So this is why God made erasers and white out and <sighs> stupid people like me who can't keep focus this morning. Now, there, in the Bible, there are seven distinct judgments, just like there are seven distinct resurrections. And you've got to see the judgments first before you can really do the resurrection. So I apologize. But the, I want to walk you through these. And I want to show you. And the first three uh, really form the foundation for, uh, for you and for me. And um, I want you to come over to Isaiah 53. Now, Isaiah 53 is probably the single greatest place in the Old Testament, if, if not the whole Bible, that deals with Christ's death on the cross for you and for me. And uh, Isaiah 53 is, uh, is a prophetic look at Christ dying on the cross. And here's, let's read it here in verse 1. It says, Who hath believed our report? <clears throat> to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? Now, <clears throat> 
if you don't have this marked in your Bible, I'll give you these as we go through. The arm of the Lord here is Jesus Christ. Uh, wherever you find that, and you'll find that a number of places. But the, whenever you find the arm of the Lord or the right arm or the right hand of God, that'll always be Christ. That'll help you when you, you run across those. <clears throat> so he says, who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? And so now we know he's talking about revealing who Christ is, or in this case, what he's done. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant. This is Christ in his early years. And as a root out of the dry ground. Now, if you don't have your, this in there, the dry ground will be Israel. Israel's a dry ground. Christ came unto his own, and his own received him not. He's a product of the nation of Israel, but the nation of Israel is a dry ground. He hath no form or comeliness, <clears throat> and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Now immediately he moves into Christ <clears throat> being crucified for you and for me. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Now all this is dealing with Christ you know, as he's going through the ordeal of being beaten and bloodied and all of the things that, that happens. Uh, verse 4 is a key verse. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. We, all we like sheep, have gone astray, and have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Uh, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shears is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? He was cut off from out of the land of the living, for the transgression of my people was he stricken. Uh, now, verse 8 says, he was taken from prison and from judgment. That'll be Pilate's judgment there in the, in the, uh, in the, in the Gospels. And he made his grave with the wicked, and with the rich in his death, because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit uh, in his mouth. Uh, yet it pleased God to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. Uh, uh, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of uh, the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Now when it says he shall see his seed... Doctrinally, that's Israel, but inspirationally, it's the church, you and me. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, uh, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death, he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for uh, the transgressors. Now, I'm going to give you something here that uh, is, 
is really key in your Bible and has nothing to do with what we're talking about today, but it's one of those little things that you want to find. You're going to find that people will play on the words in the Bible, and this is why you always fall back on the Bible. Look at verse 12. It says, He would number with the transgressors and bear the sin of many. Now, the Calvinist will take that and try to use that to prove that uh, he didn't die for everybody. And that's, you know, that's one of the verses. And there's other verses like that, too. <clears throat> but <clears throat> this is why you always stay with the Bible and let the Bible interpret itself. Uh, because when you go over to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 6, uh, it's very, in Matthew 20, 28, it's very clear. He says, he says there that he died for all. So in the Bible, many can mean all. You have to see the context and get the verses together that support it and lay it out. But that's one of those little nuggets in there that you're going to find that uh, people will try to pull on you that you simply know the Bible when you know that that's not true. Now, the first judgment is Christ being judged and taking your place and my place on the cross. And when he did that, and this is very clear from Isaiah chapter 53, when a righteous man bore our iniquities and the chastisement of his peace was upon him for you and for me, at the cross of Calvary, when Christ died on the cross, every man on this planet would judge the guilty sinner because now a righteous man had come and died for him and bore the sins of many, all, So now, uh, at that point, this judgment is a judgment that you and I are judged as a guilty sinner. And there's no way around that. You and I have now been judged by Christ's death on the cross as a a sinner without any, any, any hope at all. Now, the second judgment, we're going to put the first three together here. The second judgment has to do with uh, your judgment and my judgment after we're saved as a child of God. Now, this is where, because they don't understand the doctrinal side of the Bible, this is where so many people get really messed up on their salvation. You have a lot of people out there, this is true of the charismatic movement, it's true of, of, uh, of many organizations out there, that believe that you can lose your salvation. And believing you can lose your salvation is nothing more than a breakdown of somebody not understanding the seven judgments. If you understand the seven judgments in in respect to the first three that we're going to talk about, there is no way on this planet you could ever, ever, ever remotely think that you could lose your salvation. Very frankly, even without these, I don't know how you could think that. But uh, it shows you the, the inadequacy of, of those kinds of people with the Bible. Now, once you're saved, and this is very crucial to understand this, once you're saved, you're still a sinner. Bible talks about the fact that you have your flesh, and your flesh is going to be against God. You have the ability to override your flesh, but at the end of the day, even though you're saved, you're still a sinner. But the thing that people, they see that, but the thing that people don't understand is you may still be a sinner as far as your flesh is concerned, 
But what got saved about you was not your flesh. What got saved about you was your soul. And your soul was redeemed by God. It was sealed by the Holy Spirit of God. And then it was separated from your flesh. So now you're two fundamentally basic people. You have your old nature, which the Bible lays out in Romans chapter 7 as the flesh. You have your new nature, which the Bible lays out in Romans chapter 7, that is the saved part of you. So here's what you've got to see and understand. You were judged as a sinner at Calvary's cross. No question about that. The moment you trusted Christ as your own personal Savior, in God's viewpoint of view, from God's standpoint of view, even though you still have your flesh to contend with, what got saved about you, your soul, is now perfect. And based on the perfecting of your soul through the salvation of God has given you and the separation of your flesh from your soul, now God looks at you as sinless. And so even though we still have our flesh and we can, we can do things in the flesh that are sin, the real key to understand is once you get saved, God never looks at you as a sinner again. That's the key. If you fail to see that, then you're going to wind up at some point in your life listening to somebody and they're going to tell you you can lose your salvation. And the truth of the matter is that when you get saved, in God's mind, from God's standpoint, you're already seated in heavenly places. Now take your Bible and turn on, keep your, take your Bible and come over here to... Uh, Over to first second Corinthians chapter uh, five. Now we have discipleship one in our church, which brings you through the basics, and then we have what we call discipleship two. Discipleship 2 is the next level, where Discipleship 1 will give you the fundamentals, basics of what happened the day you got saved and how you're to look at yourself now. Discipleship 2 takes you to the next level. Discipleship 2 is based on 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, where it says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away, behold, all things become new. Now, when we, go through this, when we go through discipleship too, we fundamentally teach you that there's seven things that changed about you the day you got saved. This goes right along with the second judgment, where the first judgment, you're judged as a guilty sinner. At the second judgment, after you're saved, God no longer deals with you as a sinner. Now he deals with you as his son or his child. And the reason for that is because now there are seven things that have changed about you uh, when you got saved. When you got saved, fundamentally, John chapter 8, verse 44 says, Before you were saved, you were of your father the devil, and the lust of your father you shall do. 
He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth because there's no truth in him. So fundamentally, before you got saved, in a practical, understandable way, your family was the family of the devil. Your first birth puts you into the devil's family as a son of Adam, and in Adam all die. So when you got born the first time, you were born into the devil's family. Now, we're not against birthdays. We celebrate them in church. I, I know all that. But I showed you last week that in the Bible, you only have two birthdays listed, and in both cases, somebody gets killed. Uh, it's not a good thing because the Bible is putting the emphasis on that the real emphasis of your life should not be on the day you came into the devil's family, but the day you came into God's family. And, uh, but there's certainly nothing wrong with celebrating birthdays. I mean, we all do it. You should do it. And uh, I get it. But you need to understand these things. When you got saved, in the easiest form, format I know how to tell you, you changed families. You went from the devil's family to God's family. And just like when you got born into your family's family, if your mom and dad didn't like you, they couldn't send you back. There's no getting unborn. Um, Nicodemus struggled with this in John 3 when he says, how can I go back to my mother's womb and be born a second time? And Jesus said, you Bible scholars are all alike. You did not figure out the Bible. And he tells him that there's a first birth and then there's a second birth. Birth of the water, that's your first birth, water birth. Born of the Spirit, that's your second birth. And, you know, once you got saved, you left the devil's family. And in God's viewpoint of you, seven things changed. And God will never look at you as a sinner again. Now he looks at you as his son. After you're saved... It's not a question whether you're saved or you're not saved based on whatever you do. And God's people, once they're saved, they can do some pretty horrendous things. But it's never a question is, are you, uh, are you God's child or are you not God's child? That's never the question. The question is, are you a faithful, obedient God's child or are you a disobedient God's child? That's the question. Now, I'm not going to get into this because in any depth, but I'm going to tell you what they are because some of you are going through discipleship too and I, I want you to get it uh, from the people that are teaching you. But uh, um, the seven things that change, the first thing found in right here in 2 Corinthians 5.17 is your soul. Your soul now is sealed on the day of redemption. It's sealed by the Holy Spirit of God, and it cannot be unsealed. In fact, the Bible makes it clear that it's sealed unto the day of redemption. Nobody can break that seal. The second thing is Galatians uh, 3, 2, uh, is your affection changed. Now you set your affections on things above. The third thing is in Ephesians 2.9, and the Bible now says that your citizenship has changed. This is one of the hardest areas for God's people, and I understand that it is, because, you know, most people are born in America, they grow up in America, we say the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag, we, all those things, which there's certainly nothing wrong with. 
and you should do those things. But at the same time, it's hard for God's people once they get saved, at least till they get their feet and learn some Bible, it's hard for them to understand that how they can live in America, but yet from a Bible standpoint, you're no longer an American. I'm an American by birth, but I'm a Christian by a new birth. Now, you find a lot of Christians will delve into politics, and you'll find that most fundamental Baptists, like the Republicans, most liberals like the Democrats. And a real Bible believer should never be political in any way, shape, or form. It's just that simple. Because you realize that both are crooks. Uh, there's not a good one in the bunch. There'll be, no, there'll be no righteous kingdom till Jesus comes back and shows up. Trying to pretend that the Republicans are the good guys and the, and the Democrats are the bad guys is a pretty stupid thing when you see that the Republicans fundamentally do the same thing that the, that the Democrats do. Uh, there's no moral values in either, in either side of it. And real right hasn't got to do with passing the laws that you like. Real, real righteous laws have to do with following the Word of God and His, and His laws. And neither one of them want to do that. Now, they'll tell you that to play to get your votes. But the truth of the matter is, they don't. And um, it's like a guy one time, a newspaper one time ran an ad that says, half the politicians in this town are, are crooks. And everybody got upset, and politician demanded a retraction. So the next week he did. And he says, I'm sorry about last week. Half the politicians in this city are not crooks. End of the day, they're all crooks. They'll tell you whatever you want to hear. You cannot be, let me just say this to you, you cannot be a viable, on-fire child of God and be in politics because you've got to compromise too much to win. And if you stick with what you should believe, you'll never win. It's just that simple. You'll never get into politics and go far selling at the Roman Catholic Church or the devil's church. You'll never, you'll get assassinated probably in a week. You'll never go anywhere in politics with talking to a stand on your King James Bible and uh, telling, getting up and your acceptance speech or your speech for running for election is to tell people that if you don't get saved, you're going to die and go to hell. You limit yourself to a very narrow margin of people who will not support you to win. So when it comes right down to it, you have to understand that I, I'm an American, I live in America by birth, but when I got saved, my citizenship changed. And that's why I have divorced myself from everything in the world, whether it be politically, whatever the case may be. They seek an earthly kingdom. Mine is a heavenly kingdom. They want a physical, literal, viable kingdom that they want to build here in America. Mine is a spiritual kingdom that you get born into, and then we build you spiritually. Most of God's people can't see that. They think they're going to change America by putting Christians into the political arena. You'll never change America or any other nation by putting people into public office that are Christian. You change America by filling the pulpit with pastors who will preach the hell out of you and take the paint off the walls every Sunday morning. That's how you change America. But we're way past that point. The next thing that changed is found in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6, and that is your seating arrangement. 
the Bible says now you're seated in heavenly places. And uh, you're no longer um, part of this world. The next thing that changed is uh, Matthew 22, 37 is your attitude. Now, where you used to love all the things of the world, now the Bible says you love the Lord thy God with all your heart, with all your mind, and all your soul. And then, of course, the sixth thing that changed is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, and that is the fact that now you've got a new job as a Christian, you're an ambassador. And that kind of sheds light on the ones that we've already talked about, your citizenship now up in heaven, your seated in heavenly places, because an ambassador is someone who is sent to a foreign land from his own home country. And once I become a Christian, once my citizenship has changed, once my uh, seating has changed, and now I fully understand that I'm seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, and my citizenship is up there, then God sends me back to this earth as an ambassador. And just as the ambassadors from every country in America have no rights here, they have no they can't vote. They have, they're just here to represent their country. I am here as a Christian in America to represent my country, and my country is where God is. And so then the, the last thing is the fact over there in the Philippians 3.20 is your conversation has changed. Now, conversation is used um, today completely different than the way it was used back in the Bible days. Or even in the early 1900s. We think of conversation as talking. In the Bible, conversation understands a greater depth of doctrine that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So conversation is not just about talking, it's about a lifestyle. Because the lifestyle you live is what you're speaking and the Bible takes that perspective, which is the, is, is, the, is the true one. We don't today because we're so out of touch with the Bible. Now, along with that, that I don't know if the people in Discipleship 2 have these, these next seven or not. Some do, some don't maybe. But anyway, seven other things that changed about you in a personal way. Now, these are things that changed about you in a biblical, doctrinal way. But within you... When you became a child of God, seven things changed about you internally. Number one was your purpose. Number two was your passion. Number three is your patience. Number four is your perspective. Those things changed about you internally. And the reason why they did is because of the fifth one. The inner man changed. And when the inner man changed, these first four things internally inside you changed, and then they accomplished the sixth thing. When the inner man changed, then the outer man changed. And fundamentally, through all of these, the end of man changed. You're going to heaven instead of going to hell. Now, that is your second judgment. Your second judgment is that you were, you were judged as a son now, come over to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and I'm going to show you this in practice here.
Now this is, this is I, I cannot stress this enough. This is one of the greatest, or the greatest concept that shows you that once you truly get saved, you can never lose your salvation. Because for you to lose your salvation, you'd have to still be a sinner. And once you get saved, in God's standpoint, you're no longer a sinner. Now you're his son. So he doesn't judge you as a sinner, nor does he deal with your sin like he did when you were a sinner. Now he deals with your sin as his child. And now it's a chastisement as a son-father relationship. No clearer place is it laid out than where we're about to look at here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Now, we know that the church at Corinth is a very worldly church. The church at Corinth is, is a picture of the Laodicean church today. They are fundamentally messed up on every doctrine in the Bible. Um, they're actually a picture of the modern-day charismatic church because they're really messed up on tongues and healing and all the spiritual gifts when you get into chapter 12, 13, and 14, which are the three greatest chapters in the Bible on speaking in tongues and healing and why it's not for today. But they're in a mess. And, and chapter by chapter in the book of 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul goes through and he deals with multiple issues that they're messed up on. And he spares them no... No, um, I mean, he puts it to them. And he calls them a bunch of spiritual babies. They're doing all kinds of stupid stuff. And in chapter 11, uh, they are messed up on the Lord's Supper. And we use 1 Corinthians chapter 11 for the Lord's Supper as a, you know, uh, as a reference to what Paul says because we want to keep it before the church that this is, this is not how you do it. And what's happening here? They'll make a long story short that there are people coming to the Lord's Supper that have not gotten right with God. And the Lord's Supper, uh, communion as we call it, is probably outside of your salvation, the next personal thing in your life and your world. It's the day when you internally um, remember what Christ did for you and there should be nothing in your life other than that concept. And so we are told to get everything out before we have to do that. Now, I want to show you what he says here, and he's speaking to Christians. I want to show you what he says about coming to the Lord's Supper with unconfessed sin in your life. Now, I'm not saying that so you'll, for the Lord's Supper. I'm saying that to show you how this judgment works in your life, though you should get it right before you come to it. Look over here at... Uh, um, Verse 27, wherefore, because of what he just said, and he has just kind of laid out the whole thing, wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily, sin in your life, shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. Verse 28, but let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. He's saying, get right with God before you take it. Now watch. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, the Lord's Supper, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Now, we have to stop here. Once somebody sees the word damnation, everything goes out the window. 
we think that um, damnation has to do with dying and going to hell. Truth of the matter is, there's two kinds of damnation in the Bible. There's a damnation for an unsaved person, and there's a damnation for a saved person. The damnation for an unsaved person is to die and go to hell. The damnation for a saved person is to suffer in his flesh the consequences because of his disobedience. So that's a thing that a charismatic or most Baptists can never get to, that there's two damnations in the Bible. There's a damnation of your soul, and there's a damnation of your flesh. Let me show you an example of that. Come back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we have a guy here in the church at Corinth who, who won't do what's right. And he's involved in immorality, and he won't get it right, and the church is not handling it right. And look what he says in 5.5, 5, 1 Corinthians 5.5. 5. Now, this is a saved man that he's talking to about. To deliver such a one unto Satan... All right, you're going to turn a Christian over to the devil. Now, this is the damnation of the flesh. To deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh. You see that? Now, look at the rest of the verse. That the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Now, there's a saved man who is getting turned over to the devil as far as his flesh is concerned for the damnation of the flesh. But yet, even though his flesh is turned over to suffer that damnation, his spirit is saved for the day of the Lord, rapture of the church. So that's clearly showing you that in the Bible, there is two types of damnation. There's a damnation for an unsaved man of his soul going to hell, and there's a damnation of a Christian in his flesh. And that's what we're about to look at here in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, 11. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. What he means by that is you're not discerning how important the Lord's Supper is concerning the death of Christ and his offering up of his body for you, and you're coming to take this cup with sin in your life, is what he's saying. For this cause, what cause? The cause of 27, 28, and 29. For this cause, many are weak. That's a physical ailment. Many are sickly. That is a physical ailment of the flesh. And many are asleep. Somebody died. God killed them. So those three things there in verse 30 are the damnation of your flesh coming to the Lord's Supper. Now look at verse 31. For if we would judge ourselves... We should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord that we should not be condemned with the world. Now, it doesn't get any clearer than that. God is judging a person and dealing with them through chastisement so you won't get dealt with like the world. Clearly different. 
Wherefore, my brethren, when ye come out and eat, tarry one for another. And then he goes on down through there. So it clearly shows you that the, the second judgment is that you are judged as a son. And you were judged at Calvary as an unsaved man. When you got saved, God no longer looks at you as a sinner. Now he looks at you as his son. And he deals with you through a father-son relationship. And when you sin, he deals with your sin through a chastisement that you won't be condemned with the unsaved world because now you are in his family and where he did not deal with you before because you were in the devil's family, now through a new birth you're in his family, he will deal with you um, just like any parent will deal with their children to make sure that they do what's right. So the first three judgments are you're judged as a sinner, and then once you get saved, at the cost of Calvary, Isaiah 53, then once you get saved on this earth, now you're judged as a son. Now we want to look at the third judgment, and this one will be uh, the third aspect of you as a child of God, and this will be the judgment seat of Christ. You're judged at Calvary as a sinner. You're judged on this earth as a son, but at the judgment seat of Christ, you're not judged as a sinner, nor are you judged as a son. Here, you're judged as a servant. And this is another hard concept for people to get. People think when you get to the judgment seat of Christ that you're going to lose your rewards because of the things that you did down here that were wrong. And that's simply not true. I mean, you may lose all your rewards, um, but God is not going to sit there and bring up your laundry list for the last 30 years of your life. And the reason for that is, is God judged you for those as a son down here. When you get to the judgment seat of Christ, and you need to understand this very clearly, it'll be about one thing. It'll be about your attitude of heart and your servitude to the Word of God that God gave you. Tomorrow, tomorrow's going to be a rough sermon. Uh, it, it, it just is. Maybe not for you guys, but it, it's going to be, I, it's gonna, it's gonna, I got several places where I'm going to tell the people, you better shut it off right now and just watch Ellen Degenerate or something like that. <laughs> uh, it's a thing where it's going to be rough tomorrow. Because if you look in Proverbs where we're going tomorrow, it's about eating the honeycomb. And I, 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 I can preach a lot of things and just preach them because I need to preach them and I enjoy preaching them and it needs to be said. And I, I have my emotions in it and it's personal to me. But you know, it's just like people in your life. There's some people that you can just be friends with and nice to and you like them. And then there's some people that are very, 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 very special to you and you, take, you have a passion for. And, uh, and it's the same way with the Bible. And I, there's nothing more passionate in my world, in my life, than when I have to preach or get to preach or have the privilege to preach about what the Bible will do for you. Because that's my book. And um, in, in life, in life there's a lot of sins that people do that I just take in stride because I know they're sins of the flesh. And I get it. But you know as well as I do, there are certain sins that people do 
that are so reprehensible that you can't even wrap your head around. And one of them is being a pedophile. I, 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 I don't even know how to, I don't even know how to respond to that. I just, my, my mindset to a pedophile is there's only one way to deal with it, and that's take them out and kill them. You never get over that. That is such a lower level demonic activity that no matter what you say or what you try to do, in my 50 some years in the ministry, or not quite 50, I have never seen anybody get out of that level of it. And, uh, and I just, I have a total disdain for it. Uh, it's better off that I don't be around it or know about it or just stay, keep it away from me because I don't, if you've got a, somebody in your world that's a pedophile, don't bring them to me because they'll never walk out of the office alive probably. <laughs> Take them someplace else. But I've got to tell you, and this is why it's going to be rough tomorrow, when I look at the guys who destroy the Word of God I look at them as spiritual pedophiles. They molest the most precious. You molest one of my kids, I will kill you. You say, that's not very Christian. I won't be Christian about it. I will just simply kill you because you're going to destroy in one of my kids' lives the most precious thing that I have. And you want to defile them, my kid that God has given to me, read my lips. I will kill you. I'll go to prison the rest of my life to put me a lethal ejection. Praise the Lord, I get out of here. I hope they put a little lemon juice in it to make it taste okay. But I will kill you if you would molest my child. And if you're here and you're a red-blooded man or a woman and you wouldn't take that position, there's something wrong with you. And I can't speak for you. You say, well, it's not Christian. You know what? I know it's not, but I'm human too. And you mess with somebody that's my child, I will kill you. But I'm the same way with this book. You mess with it. This book saved me. This book pulled me out of the miry clay and set my feet on a rock, and it changed my world. Everything I have in my life that's good, God gave me through this book. You want to mess with this book, you're messing with one of my kids. And spiritually, I will kill you. I will not take any, any grace to it at all. You mess with that book after what's governed to me, you got somebody to tangle with. Because that book means everything to me. Now you can, me, you can say what you want about me, whatever, I don't care. I deserve it. That book is holy, that book is perfect, and that book is precious. You mess with that book, you're messing with one of my kids. You're going to hear this tomorrow again, but I'm just kind of getting warmed up here so I can. And I'm telling you, here's what I believe. And this is, this, a lot of God's people have a tough time with this. I don't care. I believe with the judgment seat of Christ, it's going to be about one thing. Your attitude toward that book. I think everything in your Christian life comes back to that book. And you let somebody take that book out of your life. You let somebody tell you that that book is full. You let somebody molest that Bible right in front of you and take out the precious promises, leave out the verses, take out the precious blood, and then want to give you back some monstrosity of a Bible that has nothing to do with God, and you're going to be okay with that. Now, that's on you. But I'm telling you, I won't stand for it. And I'll preach on it every chance I get. I, I, I know what the Bible means to God. I, 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 I thought somebody would ask this question Thursday night, but nobody did, when I, and maybe you all know the answer to it. Now, 
But Sunday I talked about the four things you, you, when you minister unto the Lord. There's four ways you minister unto the Lord. I thought sure somebody would ask me that question. I was kind of disappointed nobody did. <laughs> One of them is reading that Bible back to God. Now I know you read it for yourself. And, I, and you need to do that. But I must add, that's pretty selfish of you. If you really know how much that book means to God, that that book is his son and that's his mind, I, I, can't, think of a, I can't think of a better, better way to minister unto the Lord than to take the thing that he loves more than anything else, his truth, get in a room someplace, put an empty chair across from you, and then read it back to him. Can you imagine what that must be to God when you read the Word of God back to Him with an NIV that's the devil's Bible? I'm telling Him. I take the position, make no apology for it. I believe there's people at the judgment seat of Christ that built great churches. I believe that they won hundreds of people, thousands of people to Christ. I believe that they, 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 they walked with God in their mind all their life. They never drank. They never smoked. They never ran around. They did everything perfectly, everything, but they had the wrong Bible. And at the judgment seat of Christ, they're going to lose everything that they would have had. Because it all comes back to that book. And if it doesn't come back to that book, then you tell me what it comes back to. What is the motivation of why you do what you do? What is it? You say it's Christ. He's the word, John 1.1. 1, 1. You've got different Bibles. Do you have more than one Christ? If I would get up in the church and talk about, you know, finding the real Christ in your life, that there's many Christs out there, you can follow a lot of them, but if you want to find the very best, find the best Christ. But there's other Christs that you can learn from. Would you put up with that? But I can do the same thing with the Bible, and you're okay with it. You know why? Because you're stupid. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. There was only one Jesus, and He was the Word. And you're going to tell me there's more than one Bible out there, that they're all okay, but you keep looking till you find the, the best one, and even the best one you find is still not the real one? It's personal to me, because I know what that book means to me. And I can't speak for you. But I know what it means to me. And I'll tell you, rivers of waters run by my eyes because I keep not thy word. Thy word have I hidden mine heart that I might not sin against thee. I'm telling you, when you get to the judgment seat of Christ, you're going to be judged as a servant. And that servant, too, that you're going to be judged by is going to go back to one thing, where your attitude was toward the book that God gave you. You said, well, so-and-so served his whole life serving God. I mean, when, when Billy Graham died, uh, his, everybody talked about it, and I got no ax to grind with him. But the bottom line is, they said, he run a race all of his life. Yeah, and the Bible says you can strive for the masteries and run the race, but if you don't run it lawfully, you're not crowned. What good is running the race if you don't run it by an absolute standard that tells you to stay in your own lane? So... The judgment seat of Christ is going to be a barn burner. And uh, when, you get, when, when Christ died on the cross, you were judged as a sinner. After you got saved and you walked through this life, you're judged as his son. And when you do things that are wrong, when I do things that are wrong, you've got two options. Confess it, get it forgiven, and move on. 
Don't forget, confess it. God will come down, chastise you, and then he'll move on with you. But when you get to the judgment seat of Christ, you will not be judged for your sins as an unsaved man. You'll not be judged as your sins in this life as his son. They were taken care of through chastisement. You will simply be judged for one thing, and that is what you did as God's servant with the truth that God gave you. You won't be able to plead, as I said last Sunday, ignorance. It won't be about what you know or what you don't know. It'll simply be about what you could have found out, but you decided not to. This brings up a little three-point outline that you want to remember that helps put this, these first three judgments in a context. And you've heard me say it many, many times, and I'm sure the majority of you here if not all of you know it, it's a simple little three-point. And there's little three-point things like this all through the Bible that is really good. I've got a list of about a hundred of them in the back, and they're really good sermons. I mean, they're good little devotions. But this one, it's simply sinner, son, and servant. Those are the three aspects of your, uh, you as a Christian. Sinner, son, and servant. You remember those three little things? You got the first three judgments down. At Calvary's cross, you were judged as a sinner. Once you got saved in this life, you're judged as a son. After you're saved, you get to the judgment seat of Christ, you're going to be judged as a servant. Sinner, son, and servant. It's just that simple. You're going to be judged in those three areas because the first three judgments are about you. And when you understand those first three, now that I've laid it out, there isn't any way on this planet you could ever, ever, ever hope to think for 30 seconds or less that you could lose your salvation. You know why? Because that's doctrine. That's Bible doctrine that shows you how God looks at your salvation. As a sinner at Calvary's cross, once you're saved, as his son on this earth, and once you get <coughs> to judgment seat of Christ, you're as a servant. <coughs> and the Bible says, Romans 14, 10, we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Uh, uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 10, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 says that he's going to judge every man's works of what sort it is. Short. Short. He's not just going to short through your work. He's going to short why you did what you did. Why, you could build the biggest church in this city. You could build, win 10,000 people to Christ, and you could do it with the wrong motive or wrong attitude, and you'll get nothing for it. Because it all comes back to your right motive and your right attitude. And you know what that goes back to? The book God gave you. <coughs> I got a good one for you. What about the judgment seat of Christ? You get up there and you started to list out all the things that you have done and, uh, uh, and you're waiting for all this list of questions you think God to ask you. <coughs> and when you stand up there at the judgment seat of Christ before God, when you got all this stuff ready to go, God just simply says, let me see your Bible. And he just looks at what you put in your Bible for the 20, 30, 40, 10, 15 years you were a Christian. He wants to see what that book meant to you. Why, some of God's people have over 500,000 notes in their Bible. They've got everything laid out. I mean, uh, he's going to say, wow, you went through some red pencils and some yellow china markers, didn't you? Other God's people, they're going to, is this going to be empty? Nothing. Not a thing. You know why? Because it didn't mean anything to you. He could just do that. He'd answer everything. Of course, it won't be that simple. Maybe it will. Maybe it will. But at the end of the day, those three judgments, or those first three judgments, have to do with you and me. 
And you never want to forget them because it forms the doctrinal mindset of New Testament salvation and why you could never lose your salvation. And while once you understand these three, <coughs> everything else becomes crystal clear. And you see absolutely how important the Bible is to you because that Bible is everything. And yet, for the most, if I didn't know the Bible was everything in a Christian's life, I'd know it was simply by how little time Christians spend with it. Uh, it's, it's, it's absolutely the most paramount thing in your world to build a relationship above all other relationships with that book. And when you do, it's going to ring true at the judgment seat of Christ. When you don't, you're going to get wind up with the wrong motive. And I'm not saying you'll do it. I, I don't think, <clears throat> I think most of the judgment seat of Christ are losing rewards. are not going to be, have anything to do with the dumb things we did in life. Those are paid for down here. It's going to be the things that you did that you thought were good and for God that weren't because you had the wrong book. I mean, the very idea, <clears throat> you know, it's just that God would give you an imperfect Bible all your life and then going to judge you with the judgment seat of Christ on your perfect walk, your perfect relationship, the perfect salvation, and he's going to judge you now through an imperfect book? Are you kidding me? What planet do you live on? But you see, this is where we're at today. Because you know why? Because the devil knows. He knows. He wants to destroy everything about you and God's church. And he knows the way to do it. He's tried every other way. And nothing's worked. There's only one way to do it. That is to get you to stay in God's church and use the devil's Bible. And uh, it's just that simple. And I'm telling you, it's a thing where <clears throat> I've seen God's people do some of the stupidest stuff on the planet. And, uh, you know, I, I've been asked, and I've, I've people talk to me all the time. They, they'll say, well, you know what? You know, our church is not as bad as you may think it is. Why don't you just come to one of the Wednesday night services? Or you don't have church on Sunday night. Why don't you just come and see? And you'll see it's not that bad. And I would never do that. I would never do, I would never go to somebody else's church when I knew it wasn't the right church. You know why? Because the moment you do, you lend credibility that it might be. You'll say, well, you don't really know. I know this. If they use the devil's Bible, I don't need to know anything else. I can tell the smell of a garbage can 20 feet away. I don't have to stick my face in it to know that it's garbage. But that's the stupidity of God's people today. Well, let's go check it out and see. And maybe, you know, hey, look, if it's the devil's Bible, then it's the devil's church I don't need to know any more than that. And you doing that is just lending credibility that, well, maybe they might be some good stuff. You don't have God's word. You ain't got nothing good. Amen. That's just the way it flies today. But that's the stupidity of God's people. And I see it all the time. I hear it all the time. I've had people say to me, you know, well, you got to go to so-and-so's Bible study. You know, you might, you might see that, the, hey, look, if you're not using God's word and using them in a double Bible, there ain't nothing there for me. What am I going to go there for? Enjoy your teaching from the devil's Bible? Really? I'm going to say, wow, yeah, this is really nice. This wasn't too bad. If it wasn't for the fact that you use a satanic Bible, this would be a nice place. <laughs> I knew that before I went. Doctrine. Understanding the importance of that book in your life. Playing with the devil's Bible in the devil's church will just get you screwed up. You don't, the Bible says, I hate to quit using the Bible, but that's all I got. Give no place 
to the devil. Period. God's people are the stupidest, dumbest people on this planet. And I put myself at the head of the list. Because I made my share of dumb moves too. But I'm just telling you. You can't, you come and see the Christ. <laughs> it's going to be a barn burner. And I ain't sitting here thinking for a second that I ain't going to get anything out of it. I am not. But at least I'm going in knowing it. Because I'm telling you what. If it isn't that book, friend. You're wasting your time and all your little dancing around and playing with all the other stuff only supports the fact that you need the stupid award. Sinner, son, and servant. Those three, if you can just keep them in your mind, will really help you keep those three doctrines straight. And those are the first three judgments out of the seven. So any questions about those three? Because I want you to know them. Yeah, John. I can't hear you. I'm not giving to the other three. They didn't ask the question. I didn't give them to you. Forget it. Figure it out. Huh? What? I can't hear you. No, not. This is not. This is not. I'm sorry that I wasn't spiritual Monday night, Saturday morning. This is Bible Institute. We're here to study the Bible. You had your shot. You didn't get it. You're too late. Yes. On the what? On the seven things it changed, the second verse is Colossians 3.2. And it referenced... Oh, okay. Colossians 3.2. I thought that's what I said, but evidently not. Yes, sir. Okay. All right. <laughs> you got to admit, I had the book right. Okay. Hey, I've done these things at four o'clock in the morning where you guys were out drinking beer and trying to get home. So cut me a little slack. I'm just kidding you. I'm just kidding. I, my writing is terrible, and I, I, I watch some of you write. When you do, I, I envy your writing skills. Mine is terrible. I mean, it's one thing when you can't read my writing, but it's a terrible thing when I can't read my own writing. And I'll tell you, the more I write, the worse it gets. I don't know if my fingers get tired. I think it was when I was in school when I, I was the champion for I will not talk in class 500 times. <laughs> and I think I, yeah, go ahead. So when you're young, you write real small. I'm sorry? When you're young, you write real small, and then you get old, you can't read it. Anymore. Oh, is that what it is? Yeah. Oh, okay, thanks. How come that doesn't make me feel any better? <laughs> Jeffrey, can I use your magnifying glass there for a minute? Thank you. Any other questions? Those are three powerful ones. Get them down. That will fix a lot of your problems. And um, that is something that, honestly, is these little things like that. And sometime I'll give you, I'll give you all my little threes. I got a bunch of them, and they really make if you're if you're. They make great sermons. I could stretch them out for an hour easy. But, even, but they make great devotions. And, uh, you know, for softball or for volleyball, they make great little devotions. You know, and, and here again, you know, a lot of God's people have a tough time de- determining between a devotion and a Bible conference. <laughs> I've been in some of your devotions, and I just, I'll, I'll be honest, I love you to death, I check out. 
I'm looking over at the tree line, which one of those trees probably are dens for raccoons, uh, you know. I, I'm, I'm out, man. Yeah, I, I, you just, <clears throat> when, you do a, this, when you do a devotion for softball or volleyball, you got to keep in mind, the majority of people that you have there don't have the depth that you're trying to go to. And you just lose them. When I do a devotion, if it takes me longer than five or six minutes, it's because I put in a couple poems. I'm in and I'm out. I want to do something like sinner, son, and servant. I want to give them something that they're going to think about that I don't bog them down with Strong's concordance. That I'm going to give them three little jabs, say something about it, tie it all together, and be on my way. That they'll remember. But I, I listen to I, some people. I just, you know, I, I've heard it ever since forever. Not here, but in all my life. You know, some of these guys just go on and they go on and they go on. And I watch the people. And they're oblivious to it. You're going on and you think you're J. Frank Norris up there, you know. And they're over there. <laughs> and you say, well, they're unsaved. No. If you look next to them, I'm sitting there and I'm going. <laughs> and I'm saved got to be smart of who you're preaching to. And you got to know what you're trying to accomplish. And you realize that devotion is that. It's not all you know about the Bible in one hour or less. And these little three-point things, I put them in my Bible for, for a, a reason. That if I ever go someplace and somebody says, hey, could you preach? I got a hundred of them I could choose from. And then if I want to get creative, I could pull three or four of them together and really be, be, be good. Or if somebody just gives a devotion, I say, yeah, I want to talk to you about three judgments of your Christian life, sinner, son, and servant. Let me just explain this to you. It'll help you understand. Bang, bang, bang. Let's go eat. The fourth judgment. Excuse me, I just got 240 steps left in this hour. I'm going to walk around here while I'm talking. The fourth judgment. Now, the first three are to you. The rest of these three are, uh, the, the fourth one is the judgment of Israel in the tribulation period. And let me give you the references for this. Um, Psalms 48, verse 11. Psalms 97, verse 8. Psalms 36, verse 6. Psalms 105, verse Verse 7. And then we got Jeremiah 1.16. Ezekiel chapter 5, verses 6 through 15. Ezekiel 23.24. Hosea... It looks to be 611 if it's 111. It looks 611. And I don't really want to know whether it is or not, so just keep that to yourself. And then Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 8 through 20. Now, I just give you those. There's lots of other places, but those are prime places that show you that when God... 
uh, puts Israel through the tribulation period. This is his judgment on them as a nation. And this is, the Bible focuses on this all through. This is called Jacob's time of trouble. We call it the tribulation period. We were looking in Proverbs, it's called the day of adversity. Uh, it's God's judgment on them because of what they've done with Christ, the Word of God, as God's people. So, and, and most of you know that, so I wanted to really put the emphasis on the first three because they impact you. These other last four are pretty, are pretty I'll explain them, but you, most of you know what they are. The fifth one, and we want to look at this one. The fifth one is the judgment of the nations. And just come over to Matthew chapter 25 on this one. I want to explain this one a little bit to you. Now let's pick it up in verse 31. There's a paragraph marked in 31. Now this is called the great judgment of the nations. This judgment takes place at the second coming of Christ, sometime in that proximity. Uh, and here's what he says in verse 31. When the Son of Man shall come in his glory, wherever you see that, that'll be the second coming, and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. Uh, the cross-reference to this, if you don't have it, is Isaiah 43, 8, if you want to put that in there. Uh, and before him shall be gathered all nations. And he shall separate them from one another as a shepherd divideth the sheep from the goat. Now, sometime, sometimes this judgment is called the uh, judgment of the sheep and the goat. So you want to remember that. Sometimes they put that little sub name to it. Uh, then shall the king, notice this is in the millennium now, he's come back, Revelation 19, he's been crowned. Uh, notice, uh, uh, and, and shall, uh, then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, notice it's the right, right in the Bible is always good, left in the Bible is always wrong. Or it's associated with the devil. Um, Come ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you for the foundation of the world. So this, what they're inheriting here is the kingdom. This is the kingdom of heaven. They're going into the millennium. And these are the nations that uh, are brought up, that are left, that, that Zechariah 14 talks about. And they come before the Lord and God separates the people uh, in that nation of going into the millennium or going into the lake of fire, listen very carefully, based on during the tribulation period, their attitude and how they help the Jew. That's what this judgment is based on, which you're going to see here. Verse 35, Jesus goes on, For I was hungered, and you gave me meat. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came unto me. Then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we a hungered, and fed thee, or thirsty, and gave thee drink? When saw we thee a stranger, and took thee in, or naked, and clothed thee? Or when saw we sick, or in prison, and came unto thee? Now here it comes. And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto the one of least of my brethren, that's the Jew in the tribulation period, 
ye have done it unto me. Then shall he say unto them on the left hand, left in the Bible is bad. Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungered, and you gave me no meat. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you took me not in. Naked, and you clothed me not. Sick, and you prison, and you visited me not. Then shall they say and answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee a hungered, or a thirst, or stranger, or naked, or sick, and did not minister unto thee? Then shall he answer them, saying, Verily I say unto you, inasmuch as you did it not to one of the least of these, true in the tribulation period. And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. Now, that's the judgment of the nations. And the judgment of the nations is God coming back and at the, in the millennium, judging the nations that are left and the people that are in them based on what they did or they did not do to the Jew in the tribulation period. And uh, so that, that's one you need to know. The sixth one, was found in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 3. And this will be the judgment of angels. And this will be the fallen angels that left their first estate. Now, here again, we're in a church at Corinth, 1 Corinthians, and they're they're not doing what's right. They're taking each other to court. And um, two Christians should never go to court over anything. They do all the time, but they shouldn't. And the reason for that is, is because there should be nothing that two Christians can't work out within the church. You have within the church body the system, spiritually, legally, that will solve any issue. The problem is people don't want to do what's right. So um, they take it to civil court. That's what they're doing here. And so he says in verse 1, Dare any of you having a matter against another go to the law before the unjust, unsaved, and not before the saints, the church? Do you not know that the saints shall judge the world? Yes, we will. That's the great white throne judgment. And if the world shall be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? He's saying if you can judge the world, cannot you work out between two people who get the dog? <laughs> 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 verse 3 know ye not that we shall judge angels now see that thing how much more things that pertain to this life now this judgment is the judgment of the angels and I'll come over to Revelation chapter 20 And verse uh, number six and number seven deal with the same event, just two different identities. Uh, the sixth one is the judgment of the angels. This will be the uh, angels that left not that left their first estate, the book of Jude, and uh, they they went with the devil uh, in Revelation chapter uh, twelve and thirteen. They make up what we know as the unclean spirits. Sometimes we call them demons. Bible calls them devils. And uh, they're going to be judged also at the great white throne judgment. And you want to keep in mind that the great white throne judgment is after the judgment seat of Christ. And we are standing there as Christ with, Christ, with God judging uh, the unsaved world. And that's why he makes a reference that we're going to judge the world. 
Now, uh, look at verse 11 of Revelation 20. And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were open. Uh, the books there will be the Word of God. Uh, and another book was opened, which is the Book of Life. That'll be the Old Testament book that the Old Testament uh, saints' names are found in, and also the tribulation probably names are found in. Um, and the dead were judged out of those things that were written in the books according to their works. Um, down here in verse 13, it says, um, uh, verse 15, And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Now, this has nothing to do with you and me. Uh, this has to do with the people in the Old Testament and the tribulation saints who had their name actually written down in a book called the book of life. Somebody here shows up at this judgment and their name is found in and they go into righteous into the kingdom and some of them their name is not and they go into the lake of fire. We'll get to that in a minute. But it says up here verse 13 and the sea gave up the dead which were in it. Now that'll be your angels right there. That sea is the great deep and that is where the playground is, Isaiah chapter 27, verse 1, and that's where they all, all the unclean spirits and the demons are in that deep. Um, the sea, the great sea of Isaiah 27, 1. And um, that's a very clear verse. In fact, you want to put Isaiah chapter 27, verse 1 there. You also want to put Job 41, 31. And these dead will be the fallen angels that are in that deep that come up at that judgment and then get cast into the lake of fire. So the next group, the seventh one, will be the unsaved dead. And that will also be where we're at in Revelation chapter 20. That'll be, and I saw the dead, dead in trespasses of sin, small and great stand before God, and the books were open. Now there's two books that are opened here. I want you to notice that. If you don't have this down alongside of this, you want to put it in. When it comes to the small and great, that'll be every unsaved man who's lived from, from the beginning of time up to when all this takes place. And the Bible says the books were opened. Those books will be the 66 books of the Bible. And they will be judged out of that book. And that book will pronounce them judgment uh, because, here again, going back to our first judgment, it'll go back to Isaiah 53 and places like that that shows them that they were judged as a sinner at Calvary, and they never made, they never made the switch. So the small and great, whether it be the homeless person down on Paseo or uh, the President of the United States, uh, the small and the great stand before God. And when the Bible says the books were opened, it's the Word of God. All 66 books are opened, and they're judged out of those books. And then it says another book was opened, which is the Book of Life. That'll be the book that Moses um, asked his name not to get blotted of. That'll be the book in Malachi chapter 3 where the Bible says that God has a book of remembrance. Uh, I think it's 3.15 or 16. Uh, and that'll be the book that the Old Testament names are written in, tribulation names are written in. And when they come up to this great white throne judgment, they're there too. But their names are found in it. And they go in where the unsaved man name is not found in it. And the Bible says, verse 15, and whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. 
Now, this is the last judgment in your Bible. And uh, this is the judgment that most people, most religions, that when you get to this judgment, there's a big set of scales there, you know. And God puts all your good works in this one, and God puts all your bad works in this one, and then you balance it out. You know, if your good works outweigh your bad ones, then you go to heaven. If your bad ones outweigh your good ones, you go to hell. If you're kind of in the middle, you go to purgatory or someplace like that, uh, or Topeka, Kansas. I'm not sure which is worse. But, but it's a thing where that's the general mindset, and, and that's not the way it works. When an unsaved man gets here, He's going to be taken back to the first judgment that he was judge of the Calvary, and all God's got to redo is read Isaiah 53 to him, and and uh, and uh, he's going to put you in this hand and Jesus Christ in this hand, and you're going to weigh you out, and uh, it's going to come out bad for you. So <clears throat> you can begin to see how important these seven judgments are as they fit into the overall plan of God's systematic study of sevens, and. Uh, you start begin to see how they crisscross each other, how they form a safety net of good, solid Bible doctrine that keeps us from, you know, getting messed up and getting into the um, getting into heresy. Bible doctrine, you know, and I when I had my little tirade a little bit ago about the Bible, which was just a warm up for tomorrow's tirade. Um, I, I think that's the biggest problem I have with it is that I know how important doctrine is. And I know we live in a world that doesn't want anything to do with doctrine. And uh, <clears throat> tomorrow is going to get real personal with a lot of churches and a lot of denominations, but I don't care. <clears throat> it's a thing where uh, doctrine has to be the thing that separates for us. Uh, again, all scriptures given by inspiration of God and is profitable. The first thing is profitable for doctrine. How somebody misses that, I, I don't get it. But they miss it because they want to miss it. I'm going to take you into the Bible tomorrow, and I'm going to show. Remember how last week I took you back, and we were talking about soul winning and, and uh, uh, winning people to Christ, and I took you back to Judges 3 and showed you Ehud and Eglon, and I showed you an Old Testament picture of soul winning. Tomorrow I'm going to take you back into a story in Old, in Old Testament, and I'm going to show you a picture of exactly what Christianity is today and why it's the way it is, and I'm going to show you the big-time pastors right there in a story in the Old Testament. Everything matches up perfectly because the only thing men never learn from history is they never learn anything from history. And um, uh, it's one of those things where you're going to see um, tomorrow how important the Word of God is to you and how that doctrine is the number one thing uh, for your life. Therefore, it's the number one thing the devil had to get rid of. So, yes? Seventeen one. And there came one of the seven angels which had the seven vials and talked with me, saying, Come up uh, come hither and I will show thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters, okay? Yeah, that's the judgment of Babylon. Yeah. That that's yeah, that's uh that that is not one of the seven judgments. Uh, that one will be dialed into the judgment six and seven when it all comes together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you were just talking about um, the two books, correct? The Old Testament saints and tribulation saints, they're going to get judged out of the book of life. But on um, the 66 books, you mentioned the unsaved being judged out of that. 
do we do we also the church fall into the no church no. church is judging with Christ no, okay, no. you're in the grandstands pointing the fingers it'll be a glorified finger but finger is a finger okay. yes sir I like your hat by the way you can buy me one of those and give it to me if you want Go ahead. I'm just kidding. Judgment of the nation, that's at the beginning of the millennium? It looks like it is because it's right there when the, when the king, when the Lord cometh in his glory and then he's sitting on the throne. So it looks like it's right there at the second coming when he comes in. Yeah. That, that would be, that would be, and Zechariah chapter 14 clearly says that the nations that are left. So it would be in that time period. Yeah. I don't know of exact, like he gets on the throne at 1145 and at 1215 he starts the judgment of the nation. But it's in that time period, yeah. I mean, see, I'll just give you something. I know in the Bible we're at 1145 to 1215, but I ain't telling you. Just kidding you. 